This episode of the podcast is brought to you by my company, Horns of Odin. We've recently released a brand new gift set. The gift set contains a 25cl bottle of mead, and you have the choice from three flavours, including our brand new spiced mead. As well as that, you get a small rustic drinking horn, and both are displayed in a nice little gift box. So head over to the website, hornsofodin.com, to grab yourself one. Also, keep an eye out, as we're going to be adding more items and gift sets over the next month. On top of that, we give listeners of the podcast a bonus 10% off with a discount code HORNS10. So remember to use the code HORNS10 at checkout. Right, let's jump into the show. Welcome to the Nordic Mythology Podcast. I'm Daniel Farron, co-owner of the company Horns Vodin, and I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Matthias Nordvig. Hello. Well, this time around, we're joined by Rune Janu Rasmussen. Rune is a historian of religion, um, graduated from the University of Uppsala, but uh, currently uh, living or has been all along, I guess, living in Copenhagen. And aside from uh, uh, being a historian of religion, Rune, you have also uh, created the, uh, the, the the Nordic runic calendar, and you're also the man behind um, the website and YouTube uh, channel called uh, Nordic Animism. And, uh, well, yeah, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks for having me. You're welcome. I mean, I, I have to say, start off you are the trendiest person we've had on the podcast so far so how how are you how how's life in copenhagen uh copenhagen is just fine it's uh we, we have a bit of uh covid lockdown and uh but uh but nothing nothing compared to the uh collapse or loops that uh we hear about over in matthias part of the world <laughs> so so it's uh it's uh yeah it's pretty chill here i think it's okay compared to elsewhere yeah, <laughs> I think most of the world probably thinks that at the minute. Looking over to uh, to where Mateus is, you know, we we, we think you know <laughs> it's pretty shitty over here. But I'm glad I'm not over there. Yeah, I was standing with a couple of friends the other day, and someone was saying, "So, how's it going?" And the guy was saying, "Ah, oh, man, oh, it's a little bit uphill right now. Let's talk about something else." Then somebody else was saying, "So, how's it going in the U.S.?" And then everybody just laughed. <laughs> Everything's going to shit. So, so Mateus, how are things yeah. over there? Because I know we we had to actually postpone this episode because you had a little bit of fear of a, of a the, the the biggest fire in Colorado history. Yeah. So. Um... Uh, we had to postpone because I had to pack all my shit, basically. <laughs> like all, all the important stuff I have in the house, I had to pack down. Um, not because of the biggest one. Um, the Cameron Peak Fire is the biggest one right now, the biggest one in all of Colorado history. It's it's far uh, enough away that it's not a, you know, an actual problem in terms of like threatening um, my existence, so to speak. Uh well, I mean, long term, the the, uh, the smoke's definitely going to have an impact on on my respiratory system. But that's you know for for 
this later decades. Um, no, the, the, the real problem or the, the problem that, that is just right at hand are the two other fires that have started for the south of, of the Cameron Peak fire and have the potential to actually spread to where I live. So yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's why we're uh, packing up things and just making sure that we can get out of here in a minute's notice. Um, if they tell us to evacuate, the evacuation line is, uh, I think, about 10 miles north of where I live. So, yeah, that corresponds to 16 kilometers in European. I've, yeah. I've got to ask, <laughs> did, did you get in trouble for packing something that wasn't important or not packing something that maybe uh, your wife considered important? Because I assume if that was my house, I that would definitely happen. <laughs> no, no, I... Uh, it's, um, we, we like I, the clothes, um, important papers, uh, personal effects, um, you know, those kinds of things, <laughs> important things, uh, the, the cowboy boots as well. Right. So, no, I, I think we're both on, on the same page on what, what is important here. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. I mean, Runa, this um, this kind of takes us to what you told us just before we started the podcast about what you heard. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I, I heard uh, I heard people being like, "Oh, but these guys, you know, I, I start them when I'm doing my uh, my dishes, and then I, I work, and then I come back, and like ten minutes later, they're still talking about how COVID is going in in their in York and wherever they're living <laughs> and stuff like that." So, so, uh, so you got a, you, you got a bit of uh, uh, criticism for. Uh, for chit chatting too much. Talking too much. Speaking, so, uh, speaking of chit chatting, by the way, let me just. Uh, go off on a tangent here um, <laughs> now that I can <laughs> just to piss people off even more so uh, the good thing about this whole thing with the fires right is that we've completely forgotten about COVID that, yeah, that's it's, true it's still a raging pandemic but uh, <laughs> but now that there's literally a fire on our ass we're all like hmm <laughs> you know if yeah. you go somewhere everybody's uh, like if you have to go to an, an office somewhere you know, you get asked about symptoms and, and you get your temperature ch- taken and all that stuff. I went to the DMV, uh, the Department of Motor Vehicles, right, to get my uh, license renewed. And they took my temperature and then they asked me, do you have any symptoms like coughing, la, 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 la. And I'm like, of course I'm coughing. Like, have you seen the fucking sky? <laughs> it looks like a goddamn apocalypse here. <laughs> I, talking about the apocalypse, I really do hope that I'm not the only one having a little Ragnarokian sort of nerve moving inside me when I'm seeing like these images of the the sky being dark brown in all of California and stuff like that. I mean, we, we've, we've heard and we've seen that stuff from Siberia and Kamchatka and stuff like that, but it sort of remains. It sort of remains so... Uh, um, what do you say? Abstract for most people. Okay, yeah. The forest is burning in Siberia. Okay, okay. But in California, like, uh, where, I, 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 and I, I really think it's going to actually, it's going to change a lot of stuff because that kind of real experience of, okay, this is what, this is what the effects of climate change looks like. That, that's when it's hitting the most important people in the world. Uh, the big tech companies mm-hmm. and stuff like that, all based in California. Uh, then, then I think it has, uh, must have a, absolutely yeah we're 14 minutes in now so i think we've spoke a little bit we spoke just enough of the personal side of things should we yeah. uh, to annoy to annoy people 
<laughs> or to annoy people. I think so. Enjoy hopefully some people enjoy it. We, you know, we we found so far with, with doing the podcast that we we can't win no matter what we do. So we just we've decided to just do us, and then if people like it, oh, brilliant. If not, then oh well, it is what it is. You know, hopefully people enjoy what yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah. So so let's uh, yeah let's jump into the bulk of the episode. Um, so and I, I want to start with animism, um, because personally I want to know what. Animism is other than extremely hard to say. Um, so yeah, start out with kind of like what it is. Let people know who are listening what anim- animism is, and in relation to is it what's the difference with what's Nordic animism? Is it you know is it like a, an umbrella term or, or what? How does it work? Well, let let me start by by animism and then at the Nordic in them uh, as I go along. Uh, People have a tendency to, to tendency to think about animism as the idea that everything is animate, uh, and that is not the whole story. Um, when you uh, there are, of course, there, there are actually philosophical positions today called panpsychism and these kind of things that uh, I think uh, Nana Gupta, Nana Gupta, that you had mm-hmm. on the podcast here is studying some of that stuff um that actually believe that consciousness is a is an ever-present uh condition of everything in the world uh, but this is philosophy when when you look at how animism works from a more anthropological position of uh, of looking at for instance groups of people who uh, practice animist knowledge then it's more potential than that you know there's this famous situation where one of the first scholars who kind of introduced this whole new thinking of animism, he asked an old man belonging to the Anishinaabe people, uh, so since you say that stones are sometimes uh, are, can be um, uh, animate, are all these stones out here animate? Are, are they all persons? And the old man said, nah, but some are. <laughs> and this, this has become this kind of almost, you know, iconic situation that even though the Anishinaabe language talks about stones as persons grammatically, then it's a little bit more potential than that. It's not just that any stone is equally personal. And and so animism is, the way it's formulated today, and there's a really important British scholar called Graham Harvey, who's really opened a lot of perspective on all this stuff, is that there are personalities that persons in the world some of them are human but not all of them and they but they all deserve respect that's sort of his basic point and the way that respect is shown that's different from culture to culture in some cultures alcohol is poison right and it destroys cultures and people you know societies break down in a lot of other cultures Alcohol is the polite way that people create relation to each other. So if you want to create a relation to the spirit of a tree, then you want to give it alcohol. Uh, and uh, so, so they're, they're culturally different ways of creating a respectful relation between all these persons. So that's sort of the main thing about uh, animism. Another thing that's a little bit important to, to uh, sort of – grasp is that, for instance, when we think about Nordic pre-Christian religion, these kind of 
religions, then the kind of gods that we know from that religion, Freyr and Odin and Thor and these gods, that is actually also a kind of animism. You, you find similar kinds of animism among Hawaiians, among Chinese, among Aztecs, among West Africans, where they are what you call these very composite gods that are very complex. If you have a, a really good example, it's the god Odin, which is extremely complex. He's both kingship, but also a, a vagabond. He's both social structure and order, but also madness. He's both warriorhood, but also poetry. Well, I mean, those two things might not have been so opposed <laughs> uh, in the Viking Age as they are today. Today, most soldiers who go to Afghanistan or Iraq probably aren't poets. Uh, but uh, but but that, that was a little bit different in those days. But um, but this is just to say it's a very composite uh, deity, and you find the same among many many uh, different cultures. And this is also a kind of animism. It's a way of ani- uh, of giving personhood to parts of our reality, right? So a million dollar question here, though. Uh, sorry, because um, you're using the term animism, Graham Harvey as a scholar of religion has uh, sort of like revived that. But there, there's been a long period of time, I would say, in the study of anthropology and the history of religion, uh, where animism was frowned upon. And, and can you just give us a little bit of context to that? Because, you know, there might be some people listening who are thinking, you know, in those terms, like, why, yeah. why are they using yeah. that term now? Yeah, it was uh, animism is a very old actually co- concept in 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 research on religion. It, it came from uh, uh, one of the most important figures in anthropology of all, name uh, that was uh, Edward Bernard Tyler, a British uh, cultural researcher, who uh, had animism as that idea that everything is animate, and and that in his view that was the beginning stage of cultural evolution. He had this idea that cultures would evolve and they would become uh, better, better and better. So, and he, he even he even kind of says, okay, so the Aborigines are the lowest and then the uh, Native American Lakota, they're a little bit higher and the Aztecs are a little bit higher yet and then we have the Chinese and then we have the Italians and then we have the English. <laughs> so, so uh, this is called cultural evolutionism, right? The idea that that, that humans progress and become better and better and better until they become like <laughs> the person who is developing the theory in this you, case. the British. I mean, <laughs> it's all right. You can say it. We, 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 I, I understand our history. <laughs> <laughs> so so, so uh, the idea of animism came from that idea and that it was sort of the beginning of the beginning of all these developments. And that's why you still hear sometimes people talk about animism as the foundation of religion, as something that's foundational. This is this is because people are still a little bit sort of steeped in that old way of thinking. But what you really find, and when you, uh, when you look at how people handle animism, is that, that uh, that w- what you really find is very, very advanced knowledge systems that it takes a lifetime to acquire, and the uh, the uh, capacity to sort of handle subjectivity and stuff that that you find at a Cuban practitioner of 
of the religion Palo Mayombe is, is of staggering complexity, and it's not something a child can do. The, 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 the old idea would be animism is a childish thing. It's something that is a little bit ch- children will animate and say stupid chair if they hit themselves on the chair, right? That, and that's, and in a sense, yeah, that is animism. It is a kind of animism, but it's a little bit like saying a child will also say, oh, there's 100 kilometers of distance to the, the stars, uh, as a childish way of saying as a far, but that's very far mm-hmm. stretch between that statement and an actual astronomer actually describing distances in space, right? Did that did that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I have a couple of questions I want to ask that may be completely idiotic, but that's usually my job here. So, uh, so the first, I mean, you mentioned them kind of well things described as persons. So does that mean, like, I guess, I guess, would they have a spirit in a, a person form or do you, is that just a word you use for kind of like what their spirit would be? Does that make sense? It's just, I, I guess I associate the word persons with a, with a human. So I guess if you were to say that a tree or a rock had a person's, are you kind of seeing it as a, in like a human way or is it kind of its own thing? It is. Well, actually, that's a. Let me just think for a while. <laughs> I think um, while you think, Runa, um, I can give you an yep. example of how this works uh, in um, in uh, Inuit uh, culture and language. So, uh, Inuit, the 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 peoples uh, who inhabit the uh, North American Arctic, um, Greenland, for instance, uh, they're specifically known as the Galafli. Uh, in there, in at least the Western, um, the Western Greenlandic dialect, um, the word uh, um, um, so the, the same root for for the word for human and for spirit. Um, so uh, that's the same. So so if, uh, you a person is Inuk, and uh, people are Inuit. And a, a spirit that a whale can have or, or, or a human can have is an inwa. So in that sense, there's no distinction right, where, between uh, the words that they use for humans and the words they, they, they use for the spirits that animals also have. But I guess, I, I guess with, with um, obviously with like a whale, it's, it's quite clearly like a living creature. But I guess... In like Rune was saying about with a rock, would that that's kind of I I guess I understand kind of like a whale spirit and a human spirit. Then when it comes to like what you would what most people would call an inanimate object, kind of is it? I was just wondering whether it was more like like as seen as like a person spirit or whether it was like a rock a rock spirit. And that I don't know if that might sound weird to, to some people. And I'm, you know I actually do think that things have spirit. You know different things have spirits but it was just kind of i found the the use of the word persons quite that's that's what i was just wondering about as to whether it was like human form or it was something else yeah i'm i could also have said like subjects or something like that and and, okay. and like for instance the the inuit word inua that uh matthias just mentioned is 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 a word that could probably be almost translated with subjectivity or something like that and and but there is a 
there is a human or humanizing thing about this. Like if, if, if you go to uh, indigenous peoples in the Amazon, uh, you say, okay, so they talk about the um, howler monkeys or the, the jaguars. So they, they, will some, they will talk about the howler monkeys or jaguars as humans. They live in villages. They have shamans. They perhaps grow yam and grow, go hunting like humans. They do all the things that humans do. Uh, and then sometimes they put on their animal masks and go out in the forest and, and become animals. So sometimes there is this very, very human part of, of, uh, of how this is uh, sort of envisioned. And you see traces of you see traces of this in in Scandinavian folklore and mythology all over the place. Like the the Icelandic elves, for instance, they they live in rocks. They have little rock societies in there in the rocks, and you know all those things. Like they have a rock church over there, and and so on and yeah. so on and so okay. on. Okay, and and you find you find the idea in uh, in other parts of Scandinavia in. in Denmark, totally, but probably also in other places, that ravens and crows, they have these communities, they have uh, parliaments. So so they, they, they meet and they have parliaments. So you, if you have a lot of ravens or crows together, then they have a, a raven thing, a raven parliament, where they're deciding and they're, put, they're, they're running legal processes and they're behaving like humans. And this is exactly the same as, as, uh, as you'd find among the Yanomamo, that, that they have this very sometimes human way of talking about how, how other than humans, uh, beings that aren't humans, uh, Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that so your question is good. There is there is a very human thing about it somehow. I mean, um, so so do, yeah. does it only apply to organic matter, or I guess, I guess you know you said with a chair, but as soon as you said like you know stupid chair and giving it kind of life, almost, um, I just automatically went to a wooden chair because it's you know like it's all an organic thing. Whereas I. A plastic chair almost doesn't work the same in my mind. So how does that work? I, I uh, no, uh, like as as with the, st- uh, the example of stones, for instance, it's not. Uh, uh, that's not an organic uh, material, but but they will sometimes be uh, persons, and that can also be like landscape formations specific hills specific mountain typically or a river uh the sea and i i think like in uh, in sometimes these these things are really really similar for instance the thing about rocks that that, that rocks have personhood that is something you find Almost universally, I just read a book by an Aboriginal scholar who was talking about how important rocks are in uh, for Aboriginals. The, you know, in many many Native American cultures, uh, there is this thing that rocks are particularly important. It's the same in African cultures, uh, and uh, you, uh, you you probably find it in many ways in European cultures as well. Trees. The northern North European uh, animism or, or Nordic animism, trees have a really important role, uh, and and this is just seems to be like a really really central and important symbol that's like reflected in a lot of different aspects uh, of of myth 
culture, ritual practices that sort of run through the ages. People would carry branches and bring them into communities and put them in different places and uh, have sacred trees and villages and stuff across, like that. Across uh, the Siberian expanse too. I mean, it's the same, right? You have, have all of these rituals surrounding uh, surround, about trees everywhere. I mean, I mean that actually goes back to like my my recent personal experience of going to Scotland and lifting the manhood stones up there, which have been around for, you know, these stones have been around for centuries, maybe five, 600 years. And the idea was that the people from the villages came. And when you got to six, between 16 and 21, you had to lift this stone onto a platform to reach manhood. And I guess that that kind of sounds like this type of thing, that this this certain stone has lived through, generations and generations and it's kind of i guess it has become its own thing though you know it gets its name it gets it probably gets like a personality to a lot of them it becomes part of the it becomes a part of the community and i'm sure a lot of them have sworn in it and cursed in it and probably prayed to it to be you know like i know when i was there with some of the stones i was looking after i was kind of like had a little word with it and was like come on man fucking help me out here so you do kind of give it give it a little bit of life and, and almost thank it when you're done. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like uh, you talk about Scotland stones, lifting stones, like the, the, I'm getting a lot of, uh, recollections of similar stuff like uh i remember hearing about people lifting stones in i think it was sweden as a way of proving that you've spoken the truth about something okay so there's a stone lying somewhere and then you go out and you yeah the fact that, that it will make itself so heavy that you can't lift it if you're lying uh and there's also something about placing people on stones uh, that has certainly been in Denmark. So there's been these kind of king stones or royal stones and actually making a person a king is placing that person on top of that stone. And and there's a similar stone uh, stone thing in Scotland, stone of Schoon or something like that. So where you basically elect a king by placing on that stone. Um, uh, this, is, this is so interesting to me, who's never necessarily thought of the world in this way. But it, I guess I'm kind of thinking of it as like, not all stones are equal like it's but that's yeah. kind of like what this epiphany that's just happened it's kind of you know the you know when i went to pick some of these stones up there may have been 50 other stones that are just like this stone and but for some reason this one particular rock is special and it's been remembered and recorded for history and people travel from all over the world to pick up this this one stone but the one next to it probably weighs a similar amount and it's quite the similar shape. But for for whatever reason, this is the one. And, and like you said there, with you know, with the with the king's the putting a king on a on a stone and it and that's kind of like the inauguration. It's it's like what makes that stone special? Yeah. yeah. It, it's quite it's quite remarkable actually that that the placing on top of a stone is that that almost parallels what newer periods would be the crowning. Uh, the very crowning and i imagine everybody that was in witness was in awe of the the getting on of the stone (laughs) like you know and i imagine they took the things as well i imagine it was taken very seriously you know like if you were to deface the stone in any way i imagine that was a pretty serious thing absolutely probably probably yeah 
And you know, this is this is so widespread. You know, you find uh, saga uh, accounts in Iceland too of like the different important stones and and so on. It's, it's a very like standard phenomenon for for that northern uh, European. Uh, North Atlantic, um, those cultures that existed have existed there for uh, millennia. Um, I mean, we go, we can go far back in time to to the the uh, the Bronze Age, for instance. We can find certain stones that have uh, carvings of of like hands and also of feet on them, right? Um, in in Denmark and Norway and Sweden. And those, uh, that, that we, we don't, of course, we don't know the cultural context or, or whatever, but we can just see that that, that must have been like, incredibly important, especially this this thing of like the the having the, the um, footprints on it, right? That means then we must assume, I guess, that somebody was supposed to stand on those footprints or that they represented something like that, and and that's of course must have been incredibly special. And the, the, the folk, uh, folklore and mythology and sire literature are full of like dwarves that live in stone, um, and sometimes they lure you into a stone and then you disappear forever. Um, those kinds of things. I mean, that's that's the Christianized perspective, right? Um, but the dwarf, right? That must be that spirit of that rock that you then interact with, right? That that's that's probably just what that is, right? Yeah, and there, there are also cases where, where these, uh, where, for instance, a particular stone then becomes the sacred stone of a particular farmstead. So, so there, the, there's this thing. Um, I um, I looked a little bit into these uh, ways of uh, these kind of farmstead spirits uh, recently, and it was surprisingly uh, amazing material. And what you sometimes find is these these tales of a man who who's on, on his way home, and then he find one of the I don't know what we call it in English subterraneans, the little people, something like that. He, he meets one of the little people who's sitting at, at a at a somewhere, and he's saying, "Hey, don't you want to come home and live with me?" and the uh, spirit says, okay, yeah, I can do that. Then it comes home, and then that little spirit that he met somewhere in the wilderness actually becomes the main sort of spirit of that farmstead, and it grants a positive functionality to that farmstead. Then at some point, the wife mistreats it or whatever happens, something else happens, and it leaves again. And then, of course, the the luck and fortune of the place uh, goes down again. And, and these kind of spirits can can... It, it to me it seems like it's a quite fluid thing. Sometimes it's a spirit that lives in a tree. There's a story from Norway where a, a farm was going really well. There was a protective spirit that lives in a tree, but then the, the farm changed hands, and the new guy he he put a silver bullet in his gun and he went out and he shot the tree. <laughs> <laughs> so he basically killed the spirit, right? And then of course the the uh, the story says that then the farm uh, went down. So there's these very, or there has been these very, I think, dynamic ways of, of uh, I think, building relation to, building relation to the land or building relation to one's land, that ways that not necessarily fo- followed or would have would have followed a very strict model, but would have been uh, quite dynamic and 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 sort of resting on. Uh, kind of a, a, a way of knowing how to engage these sort of spirit and 
and figure out, ah, okay, so yeah, we don't really have a protective spirit here. Maybe we should go out and find one, you know? Um, and you find like, like, like an amazing example that just comes into my mind. I want to mention is, is the, um, uh, everybody knows the, the, the American myth of Robert Johnson who went to the crossroads and, uh, uh, made a, a pact with the devil in order to be able to play blues guitar. Right now, this probably found many cultures, but in Norway particularly, they had these really complex system around around this. You go into the wilderness, you have you perform specific rituals that give specific sort of uh, sacrifices to call up uh, typically a water spirit or any kind of spirit from the wilderness that would then come and then will tune your violin. So you have your Harding uh, violin there that's kind of Norwegian violin and it will tune it and then you have the capacity to to play powerfully on it uh, even put people in trance with the playing and so on and and uh, this is this is you know we sometimes we get presented for these kind of uh, these kind of thing as this sort of very uh, well-rounded thing oh that was the way it was or there's this myth of Robert Johnson but in reality it was probably much more fluid and and, and much more like oh kind of a knowledge that you can go out and then you can meet some weird creature in the forest that will uh, do some some voodoo on your violin and then you can go back and play the shit out of it <laughs> I, I was th- I was just about to ask the whether when you when you talk about you know like these these spirits that kind of you know keep an eye over whether that could or, or would relate to something like the devil as well something a bit more well known and I guess and more closely linked to a specific religion um, and that reminded me of um, a story from Iceland I think there was a farm I found that and I'm probably going to butcher the story but I think the owner of the farm sold his soul to the devil for prosperity and for for whatever reason didn't code his end of the bargain up and he was buried beneath a stone like a vertical stone in the ground and i think he said that he's trapped there until somebody carries another stone which is next to it around the vertical stone i think it's 200 times and i think that's kind of like the idea of him almost what you said about the spirits he's selling his soul to the devil for you know for for good luck and for prosperity for the farm, but obviously if you don't keep your end, yeah, I personally think. But this is this is a little bit of a, a personal thing. I think the idea of selling your soul to the devil, I think it has a touch of being a, a very Christian and very uh, uh, judgmental perspective of what might really be acquiring a soul like if that if that uh, violinist he goes out to the crossroads or to the wilderness and he he interacts with a, a spirit that he can perhaps bring a little bit of that spirit or bring that spirit home however when the when when the pastor down in the church is talking talking about it, then then that interaction, which is an interaction and it's an exchange, probably it's like you give some, you get some. It's 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 that it's that kind of 
uh, interaction. Then that becomes, ah, you're selling your soul to the devil, <laughs> rather than, rather than, oh yeah, you go out, you buy a soul from the devil, and then, he, <laughs> then that makes you rich, and it's a good thing. <laughs> it, it, that, that's it exactly. It's, it's almost like one, one's good and one's evil. One, you go out and you meet something, and like you gain a skill, and it's a good thing. And everybody's happy. And the other side is almost like you say the Christian side of it's you are ma- you're making a deal with this evil spirit, and it's a bad thing because you're doing it for your own personal gain. And shame on you! You've sold part of your soul, and now you're not going to go to heaven because you're a twat. You know, it's 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 almost like you say they've taken those original stories and put a bad spin on it to to, to I, I in my opinion to control people. Exactly. And like that thing about the personal gain, uh, I think that that that's also a very specific Christian thing where where the the animist perspective would be, well, that's the important thing. The important thing is to create positive relations with powers around you, persons around you, be that mountain a person that's a mountain or a person that's a chieftain or a person that's your wife um creating positive relations with all these people in order to have a good life and and that is the the frowning upon that is i think is a very characteristic thing that a lot of also like generally spiritual people sort of took over from christianity that that the the basic idea of what's sometimes called fertility religion is considered as materialist, and that's a little bit of a lower thing. It, it's not as it's not as as as, <laughs> as, uh, as being spiritual and indifferent about material realities. Well, I mean, the, the 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 thing about that is also that you know now that we're moving into sort of the realm of modern paganism and then new age stuff. I mean, the, the New Age spiritualities are, are based off of like 19th century ideas of um, uh, spiritual hierarchies. Like go go back to Madame Blavatsky, who was writing about the uh, stuff back in uh, the, the 1870s. Right? She she, she has she, she's equating the the, the the racial hierarchies that 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 people subscribe to at the time with. Um, with spiritual hierarchies, and and that's how she's also, you know, giving uh, uh, people this idea that the white people are more spiritually advanced and all that crap, and that of course, and also you know, spills over to modern Germanic neo paganism, and hence the reason why certain Nazis were a little, uh, you know, interested in that stuff, but not really. They were mostly just Protestants and Catholics. But that's another discussion. Um, but ultimately, right? That, that's that's also part of all of this, right? So we we still see that in in, in contemporary New Age uh, um, traditions, right? Where um, you know we have a mix of multiple. In traditions uh, we we borrow a little bit from from Buddhism, Hinduism, from Taoism, from from perhaps some uh, European uh, pre-Christian uh, religions and so on. But we tend to think in that idea of like you know a spiritual hierarchy. At some point, you you ascend to to a higher spiritual state, and we also see that in many you know modern Christian sects, for that matter. So yeah, c- certainly I, I have a, a parallel, uh, and I think quite 
funny example from the from a similar period that uh, from what you're talking about with uh, Blavatsky and so on. I think the emergence of European spiritism might be slightly earlier than Madame Blavatsky, but uh, this the cult of dead spirits uh, is that that developed in Europe in the 19th century as a sort of pseudo-scientific sort of way of trying to, and they, they were like hypnotizing each other and tables with people knocking down under the table when it meant yes and no and stuff like that, all weird kind of stuff. This this strange religion developed that was a, a uh, thing about dead spirits, right? But the whole idea of how they engage their spirits is focused on this very, very Christian idea of ascent. We need to reach a higher state through moral, ethical development away from the material. Now, what happened when this particular idea, dead people kind of floating into the transcendent thing by being morally moral, uh, when that meets the African uh, ideas of the dead, then what happened is that that European spiritism, which doesn't really play a role in Europe anymore, um, it's here, but it's really insignificant, that suddenly became a flipping world religion. European spiritism is a gigantic thing in Haiti, Nigeria, uh, Brazil, Cuba, uh, different places in Mesoamerica. And what happens is that that it's as if they uh, that they totally link with all the content, just not that idea of going away from materiality. They sort of invert that. It's about getting them down. So what what you what you have in in uh, religions uh, such as uh, Santeria, Lukumi, uh, Palo, Umbanda, all these sort of Afro Caribbean religions, is that they're working. Uh, they've really taken in a lot of the stuff from European uh, uh, spiritism, but it's it's sort of it's all about these sort of funny, sexual, loudmouth uh, spirits who come and, yeah, I'm Napoleon and Cleopatra, and they're smoking big cigars, and they're drinking rum, and they're having a good time, and they're groping the girls, and, and, uh, and, and that's what it's all about. And, and this is What uh, you're saying right now is that um, uh, multiple uh, peoples in the Caribbean in particular they picked up on that whole like uh, British uh, upper class uh, uh, clairvoyant seance for Aunt Jemima and have like fused that with the, uh, like the, the, the spiritualities and traditions that existed in yes. their communities. That's fucking awesome that they managed to make that interesting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the idea, the, the idea, yeah, it is, it is. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, like spiritism uh, in Brazil is a huge religion, huge religion. French, the French tradition of spiritism from Alain Kardec, uh, which is a weirdo thing, like you won't believe it, uh, has gone to Brazil and become uh, something that parallels a world religion while uh, entering into this this contact. And this is really. This is, it, I mean, I almost see the spiritism as a weird sort of manifestation of something that is really very kind of native European almost. You know, it, this idea of the dead and it's sort of, you know, some sort of call of the dead and uh, you just sort of struck. And then it's sort of finding a form uh, in this, this 
weird spiritism. But when it then meets the uh, West African ideas of the Igungun dead or the um, the uh, West Central African ideas from the Congo, and so that's just love at first sight. Spiritism plus uh, Bakongo ideas of the dead that just worked out like a charm, and uh, like literally, uh, and uh, and now you have. Uh, now you have these Euro Bakongo spirit uh, spirit dead things going on in uh, huge parts of the of the New World. So, just to jump in, what what's the, what's the definition of spiritism? It's the idea that it, it, well, it's a specific cultural thing that happened in the mid nineteenth century, where people started to you know put glasses and talk to dead the dead auntie and stuff like that. These sort of very popular ideas that are at the same time sort of a folkloric thing, but they're in some sort of contact with this whole spiritism thing that suddenly became a thing in in, in 19th century. And that then kind of uh, went into a very beautiful marriage with uh, with African ideas. And I think that's that has been a part of Nordic way of Nordic ways of, of animating also this idea that certain persons, their spirits are particularly important. So if you are a very important king in of the Inglinger in Sweden, then the names of that that king might actually be identified with the patron deity of the the of that family. I don't think we can see this happening specifically, or maybe you can say more about this, Matthias. I, I haven't sort of spotted it specifically, but 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 uh, when you read these, the Inglinger saga and these things, uh, you often see these names that are sometimes they're kind of deities and sometimes they're kind of described as kings and Frodi and Fjolnir and all these, these things. And this it seems very reminiscent of what I know from my work with the West African religions, where you have uh, you have sacred kingship, uh, like there was in pre-Christian Scandinavia, and sometimes a king who is the son of a specific thunder god will sort of rise up, and then actually his name will become the name of the thunder god, or he will sort of manifest a new thunder god. So there's a continuity between uh, humans. And human spirits, powerful humans, powerful human spirits, and deities. Uh, those things are quite close to each other, and there's sort of a possible exchange between them. It sounds like knowing a guy who knows a guy who met a guy down the pub who who knew <laughs> who who's, who's best mates with Thor, and I feel like that's kind of like the uh, the way it works. <laughs> Yeah, but I, I I think I think it's a little bit like that. Like uh, one of my favorite uh, examples of of this is the Haitian Revolution. There was a revolutionary leader called Shang Shak uh, Desaline. Now he was a son of, meaning that he was connected to a war god called Ugu. This god was invoked in the Haitian slave revolt against the French uh, domination, and. Uh, he died, Jean-Jacques de Saligny. He, he died. He was killed in a very violent way. But because he was a revolutionary leader, it was as if he manifested that deity so much that his name got identified with that god. So now there is a manifestation of the war god, Ugu, which is called Ugu de Saligny, as a kind of... Uh, and so you see, he becomes a leader and he sort of iconizes that force so much that it pulls down the force so much that he almost gets identified with it. 
And I think if we could go back to like the fifth, sixth, seventh century and look at what was going on in Uppsala and Lithra and Denmark and all these uh, centers in, in Northern Europe, you would probably find something like that. And I think that uh, you will find, and, or in England, that, okay, so Woden is inscribed in these royal uh, dynasties and it's it's the same kind of um yeah i would say just just, just to jump in there you, you just to let people know that you refer you were referring to the Inglinger saga when you were talking about the the king's the the list of the king's names um i just wanted to, to make that clear because i think we jumped onto something else and then came back to it i don't know if Matthias, you just want to give a quick rundown on what the Inglinger saga is in context to what you were you were just saying I was just trying to just trying to clear clear that up because I know I know Rune mentioned it and then like we went off on one subject and then came back. Yeah, so Inglinga Saga is the the beginning of the uh, a compilation of the Norwegian kings' sagas, and it begins, you know, by 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 describing actually the the Aesir, Odin and Njord and Freya coming to to Sweden and setting up shop there. Um, and, and sort of like weaves in this weird narrative about how they're kind of progenitors of the Ingling art, but then kind of not, especially not Odin, because we can't have that. At this point, it seems like the, 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 the author who is, uh, who's writing here, um, who might be Snurder Stodison, but we're not entirely sure. I don't actually think it is. Uh, this is still debated by scholars. Um, uh, it's definitely not particularly positively inclined towards Odin. But it is part of the tradition that Odin was probably the actual progenitor of this royal lineage. Um, but it's sort of like being diverted to Freyr in this story. And then from him, that's where we get the actual historical or semi-historical royal lineage in uh, what is called Ingatal, uh, this uh, poem by Theodor um, of, of Creed. Um, a, 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 a Icelandic scout uh, who, who, who created this uh, poem um, in, in tribute to the Englands. And, um, and this starts with a, a mythical, semi-mythical figure named Fjölnir and then goes on from there. And the saga, of course, lists a little bit of information about each of them, each of all of these uh, individuals. And there are, you know, 37 or something like that, 45, I can't remember. There's a bunch of them. But they're all more or less like mythical figures rather than historical figures. It's only when we get very close to Halfdan the Black, and, and who's the father of uh, Harold Fine here, that that these uh, the individuals uh, in the lineage that I mentioned start you know looking more like actual historical figures. So, so yeah, that's a brief rundown. Of, Perfect. Uh, of what and just to throw in a shameless about. plug, <laughs> we do have um, an episode just just on the Englinger saga alone. Um, it's on our Patreon. So if you are interested in learning a little bit more about the story, um, you can just go over to Patreon forward slash Nordic Mythology Podcast and find it there. <laughs> nice. You know, you've got to, you've got to pay the bills. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rune, obviously, I feel like we've, we know what animism is now. Um, how can we relate that to Nordic animism in particular? Um, part of the sort of the motivation for 
coining Nordic animism is as a way of saying, okay, let's try to flip the perspective on Nordic history of religions in a way where we can include more things. Uh, normally, when people study Nordic religion, uh, uh, they say, we're, we're studying pre-Christian religion. And of course, when you study pre-Christian religion, you have to sort away Christianity. It's in the definition of it. Uh, and that means that you have a huge problem because all the stuff that tells about the pre-Christian religion were written down by Christians. And so I thought, how can how, how can you flip that situation around in a way that sort of opens and to understand, for instance, understand broader um, aspects of Nordic history of religions, where you can also include uh, things that happen under a Christian umbrella, things that happen while Christianity was a the, the powerful religion in Northern Europe. Like now we just talked about powerful human beings uh, as as potentially uh, gods or actual gods. Uh, so when we, you, we have the idea of the Inglingar as descendants of Frey and Frey is perhaps their patron deity, then uh, then what happens is that Christianity comes, and then the Swedish, uh, the Swedes, they figure out that they want to have a Christian saint called Saint Eric that has a sword and a blooming stick, very frail-like figure, and which is celebrated in the spring, and they carry him around in the fields, and they bring him offerings of gilded ears of corn. They, they have this extremely frail-like behavior around this Saint Eric. So this is just to say that that there isn't a re actually a distinction between two different religions. There is just relating. Uh, and Saint Eric is a contemporary, useful way of relating to stuff in a similar way as Frey used to be. Perhaps there was even a, a, a tradition before him where sometimes a king would be powerful and he would sort of encapsulate the the patron deity of the dynasty and then perhaps it would be his name that took over so perhaps and we, now i'm in 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 the big land of speculation perhaps there was a a king called ing perhaps there was a king called uh freyr perhaps there was a king called fjolnir perhaps there was a king called frodi at some point and these different names uh, could have been functioned a, li a little bit in the same way as as i described before with shang shak desaline in the haitian revolution right so when saint eric comes onto the field then it's actually he, they pretty much go on doing what they've always done they make a king the uh, the, the deity this is this is a very easy example because it's very the, this christian practice is very close to the the sphere of heathendom but but you can also pull that throughout um, uh, cultural history, and you can see the ways that people relate in different uh, paradigms and different uh, religious uh, ways of understanding, or even political ways of understanding. When Danish socialists tie beech branches to their red flags on May Day and carry these beach branches on their red flag into town on May Day, then this is a political logic to them. They're celebrating their ideals of solidarity and, and, and so on and so forth, and their unions and so on. Uh, but there is also a fertility logic of spring that it almost seems that they're calling that into their idea of socialism, which is also an idea of fertility, making uh, these workers 
a little bit more wealthy. So they are, in a sense, reinventing uh, something that might have been there in different forms or shapes throughout history. Yeah, because you would, I mean, it's a standard Danish tradition of, you know, back in the day to bring in uh, the first uh, sapling, right, on on May the 1st, yeah. Um, Yeah. And even I think also in in England, all of Northern Europe, there's that idea of carrying branches into into town on May first. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's I think it's called I think the right expression is in English is bringing in the May. That's what it's called. Um, so when you shift the perspective, instead of saying I want to understand this particular context, say the Viking Age or the pre-Christian period in in one specific context, perhaps I want to understand Swedish Viking Age relating to Frey. Uh, then you say I want to understand relating a certain kind of relating, perhaps a little bit throughout history. Then then you're sort of throwing a hand grenade into the <laughs> the the way that 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 this perspective used to be delimited, right? If it used to be like this, then you're like, ah, it's going to be like that. <laughs> and and, and that, that, that has been a little bit my my intention. I wanted to sort of say, okay, I want to I look at it in a very much broader sense where I can take in a lot of the cool shit, like the fact that there was a runic calendar with two lines of runes that represent the cycles of the sun and the moon throughout the year. I mean, that to me, that's just so spectacular. And when I've been looking at all this stuff, I was always, always thinking, man, or oh, the hippies of the world, they just need to know this, man. They need to know that, you know, you know, they walk around and thinking that in the old days, people didn't do anything else but brewing sacred beer and having uh, ritual sex on bronze age rock carvings. And when you read it, when I read it, I, I can see yeah, that's true. They need to know it. That's actually how it was. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, that sounds pretty awesome. <laughs> I mean, there's huge parts of when you look at, for instance, folklore. There, there are parts of it that are paranoid and being afraid of this and that, and being afraid of everything and so on. But there's a lot of it. There's a lot of it that's also it's a very joyful way of being in the world. So, so what you're basically saying. Is that this distinction between uh, Christian and pre-Christian or Christian and pagan doesn't really work? Um, we, I mean, it, it 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 can be used as sort of like a foundation. Of course, there are certain things that need to be squared off in scholarship, for instance. Like uh, as a scholar of uh, Old Norse mythology and such things, I of course have to be aware of that when I do my work. But uh, ultimately, what you're saying is that the relationship that a person in say 13th century uh, Iceland or Norway or Sweden or Denmark or whatever uh, could have to saints and to perhaps other figures of the church or or, or kings or dead kings or princes, I don't know, um, uh, queens for that matter. That's similar to what they, the relationship that somebody in the 900s could have had to a Odin or Freyr the king at the time and and so on and so on and so on and it's the same way you're also saying then i guess to those um uh, modern pagans that would be listening that if they are too um, concerned with the relationship between christianity and their modern paganism they don't have to be 
Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think you're summing it up. I think you're summing it up quite well. I mean, the distinction between uh, Christian and pagan religion is important from very specific perspectives. Like, for instance, if you want to describe pre-Christian and produce a historical description of a pre-Christian religion, then you need to have that distinction. But what if your objective is to relate to Frey? That's a very, very different objective. And, uh, and that objective is also an objective as a, that, that with, with new animist scholarship, which is a kind of science that acknowledges deities and spirits as, as fully real agents in the world, right? Which is also completely crazy and controversial and everything and awesome in a million ways. But when, when you work with that kind of scholarship, then you can actually say, okay, well, relating to Frey, well, that's, an, that, that, that's a valid, uh, that's a valid uh, objective. And you can actually describe scientifically uh, what uh, what technologies that might help you achieve that objective, right? And from that, if you if you move into that space, then I would say that the distinction between uh, Saint Eric and Frey uh, and sort of taking those two things apart is counterproductive. Rather, you should see them in continuity and you should uh, work with them uh, as a way of, and well, now, now, now I'm speaking to the, the heathen sitting out there, but there can also be scientific perspectives where this sort of continuity can be, uh, can be a, um, a better underlay to produce a specific kind of analysis. Um, where, where you look at continuities in, in, in that way. So, so what we're basically, what we're getting here is sort of like a complete, uh, 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 or maybe not a complete, but, but generally a, uh, a breaking down of the barriers between like these monolithic terms of like religions um, and definitions of religions. I mean, you know, anybody who's familiar with the history of Christianity also knows that that is very well the case when it comes to Christianity in and of itself. And the, all the different shapes and forms that it has taken over the centuries, first in Europe and now also elsewhere in the world, um, after Europeans spread it uh, in different places, right? Um, but that also then, you know, uh, brings in cultures, right? Uh, so, 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 so there's a, uh, there's more fluidity between cultures, or or how are we supposed to understand these uh, uh, these relations in, in in that perspective, so to speak? I mean, you know, we are always, especially uh, in the you know the Euro Europe of nation states, we're so so busy talking about a specific culture in in that little particular you know uh, plot of land that 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 we finally managed to like fight with teeth and nails to get right <laughs> regardless of where it is if it's in spain or it's in the balkans or it's in scandinavia right um how meaningful is it actually then to talk in those terms and to think in those terms well it's meaningful from the perspective of that people want to see it mm -hmm. and thereby do create it but again, if you if you for instance take an uh, an animist perspective, then uh, there isn't like in animist for, for animist groups, for instance, there isn't much sort of will or intention to say, okay, so we have a culture, and that culture is sort of a, this 
thing that we're living inside and it's all coherent and consistent and it's everything is working together inside it in a very specific way and it's different from the culture beside us uh you wouldn't find that so much in 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 groups that have a very animist focus on on how uh how they perceive re- reality and historically let us just uh, let us just consider that uh, for a second because uh we we know some and i think generally people are, are perhaps familiar with some historical precedent for this you know uh, Romans and Greeks relating to each other, right? Dionysus, oh, that's Bacchus, right? You know, that, that's how, that's what a Roman would say. Um, it, 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 this seems to be very much like the, the perspective that was in, present in, in pre-Christian Rome. Um, oh, oh, these gods over here that we, you know, encounter in, uh, say, in Egypt or, or elsewhere, like some of them take on their own identity in Roman culture, like Isis, but others they're simply translated to, oh, the same god as the, that one that we have over there in the corner, you know? Yes, totally, yeah. totally. And what you'd probably, like, what we call Nordic religion uh, would probably be uh, kind of a uh, a region with different practices that would be sort of floating into each other. And maybe one deity would have a specific epicenter. So maybe the cult of Odin would start in the south and sort of move north. And and and, and, and these, they would sort of flow into each other. But when we sort of look at it through these very coherent descriptions, uh, then it, it sort of seems like a system, uh, which, and, and that's, systemness is i don't think that's very realistic i think things would have floated a lot between cultures and been borrowed a lot and the in the nordic situation i think the art typical you could almost say example of this is the way that uh, nordic people relate to the sami so they actually have a whole concept that is meaning that you do fin faring you fare to the fins which is an old norse is a word for the sami as a way of acquiring religious knowledge um i.e it, that, like if you equate that with how people think about religion, for instance, today, it's like saying you want to be a Christian priest. Well, then you need to go and learn a lot of Islam and then you can come back and become a Christian priest. You go to the other to learn uh, learn religious knowledge. And that reveals that it's basically a that that people think m- much more about it as a as uh, systems of technologies, ways of relating to all these persons that are around us that can be more or less efficient. And if those people over there, they have efficient ways of doing it, well, that, then we got to go over and learn it. It's not difficult, not different than if they had better ways of growing fields or, uh, or something like that. Uh, and and so I think the, the whole, uh, yeah, I think an animist perspective very much changes this whole idea, both of religions as these, here we have Christianity, here we have heathendom, but also of cultures, like here we have Nordics and here we have Celtics and so on. It would have been much more, uh, uh, people would not have perceived it that. So of course they would have perceived each other as different, but one thing is perceiving each other as different. Humans do that because humans are different, but there's a difference between seeing difference and seeing 
a different whole culture, right? Right. How how accepted would Christianity have been? And I ask that just because you know, one of my dirty habits is I like to look on the Facebook groups and delve in there. And, and it seems that the opinion kind of of like modern people is that like the Christians went into Scandinavia and slaughtered everyone and made everybody follow their religion and that it's almost like Christianity seems to be seen very negatively in any kind of like Viking group or anything like that. It's like Christianity is the bad thing and the, the pre-Christian is, is the better and it was forced away and you have to try and separate the two. Whereas in my opinion is that the, the, the linked, you know, you can't discuss one without the other. They, they, they are one and the same almost. But what, how much is that true? That kind of opinion of, that it was forced upon them. It wasn't accepted. It was, it was, you know, a very negative thing. Well, first, when people create an identity, like say contemporary heathens creating identity, humans often tend to create a, a victim role for themselves as part of that identity. Nationalisms are a good, really good example. Nationalisms always have the story about how somebody else were evil to us. Uh, so I think, there's a little bit of an aspect of that when contemporary heathens uh, look at Christianity in this very dystopian way. And, and it becomes a little bit of like a, a stereotype uh, thing that sort of kind of what hippies would say about how Native Americans probably experienced uh, uh, Christian mission or something like that. Right. So that's, that's one thing. The second thing is that I think Christianity – has and this, this this is something about how Christianity is is um, structured. There are aspects of Christianity that combines with political power in ways that made Christianity very very functional for political power. It, it, as Christianity is an awesome political tool. Now, political power in the Iron Age and Middle Ages was flipping violent thing so that that means that that in a sense like christianity was useful like when 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 harold the bluetooth the king of denmark who converted to christianity when he converted to christianity as i understand the story that there was pressure from the south huge christian empire christian uh, families all over europe entering into feudal uh, connections with each other forming alliances this was a way of producing power in those days so when harold converted to christianity that was part of his uh, empire producing uh, uh, endeavor that was that was a politically clever thing to do and in that sense uh, now so this is something that Harold is interested in. This is about you know, feudal alliances and who marries who and who can marry who because Christians only want to marry other Christians and so on. And who can do crusades and who as soon as you become uh, Christian, then you can do crusades on people who are not Christian, which was a thing in those days. When the Danish king became Christian, they just went on and did crusades on the Eastern Baltics. So, uh, so this, is, uh, yeah, this is an important point. So this starts with Charlemagne. Um, it, when he invades Saxony in seven, uh, 771, he basically says, uh, oh, these people over here, uh, they don't have Christianity. They need Christianity, right? Kind of like when Americans discover oil somewhere, hmm. it's like, oh, they need democracy. 
right? Um, so, so, so he invaded Saxony and, you know, the point was to take over Saxony and expand his kingdom. And that was his, uh, his go-to also with Frisia up north and, and with the, uh, the other uh, areas to the east, like Thuringia and so on in central Germany. Right. And um, the Danes, you know, so there's probably a centralized power at that point in Denmark. They become incredibly worried. That's very obvious. This is where they start really building on the Danimir Wall, which is like the, the tiny wall of uh, Denmark, not the Great Wall of China. Um, the, the tiny wall of Denmark that sort of that is, is a wall that was built to keep out anybody from the south basically, in the 700s. And, um, and so uh, this is a political point of contention up until Harold Bluetooth uh, then submits. And there are different versions of uh, how he submits and why. Some, the, the, the favorite Danish version now that we are speaking a little bit about nationalism is, of course, that he was persuaded. Um, and everybody else's uh, favorite version is how he got his ass kicked by Otto, uh, Emperor Otto of Germany, right? So... So that's that's this that's the situation that uh, that there was a, some kind of a crucial moment uh, where um, Harold Bluetooth realized either by persuasion or force. I think force is probably the more likely uh, scenario here, uh, judging from the source material. And he was persuaded to to convert to Christianity, and yeah, that would then. Uh, bring you into that you know, you know, cultural and religious community of, of Europe, it would give you benefits. All of a sudden, you as that Christian king of Denmark can enlist all your Christian buddies from the south in alliances against these pesky Norwegians up there that you're trying to conquer all the time, right? Those kinds of things. Yeah, I feel like it's less what you actually believe in and more a game of power and what what converting can do for you and the benefits that it has. You know, I mean, like you say, it's a big, Christianity was a big power machine. So having them on your side is only going to be beneficial, like you say, when it comes to fighting your enemies. Well, at least in this period of time, and at least for that class of people in Europe at the time. Uh, of course, there's also genuine conversions, like people who actually believe that that's definitely also happening right and also that there are very different levels of religiosity between different people what we're talking about now is the aspect that is really power and and, and an aspect that 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 uh, that you could say really has violence to it somehow because violent power at that point of history was rather violent uh, and and i think that when you when you talk about this thing oh so Christianity came and uh, uh, w was violently suppressed. Uh, uh, other religions, there is. I think there is that perspective to it. You know that that uh, Christianity did link with big power in the way that that, that uh, we talk about now. But then also, you know, when you then go up through history, then and, and the perspective that I'm talking about with animism, I'm more like a little bit inside common people's mind or trying to get inside common people's mind, trying to get inside that, that, that man in, in, in Sweden who sacrificed a horse to St. Eric, you know, uh, because that is a very different uh, attitude to Christianity. And when I'm, when I'm sort of implying, trying to imply this, um, uh, not look so much at, the, much at the distinction, but more at the continuity. This is partly because uh, I've seen how uh, Afro-Caribbeans, for instance, they do that. They, w when they 
for instance, create very dynamic spaces for their traditional religions. They do it by by looking at continuity, not by insisting on these very very sharp borders between uh, between their traditional religions and Christianity. Yeah, I think I I would lean towards your thinking in that not not everybody is equal. So I feel like you know the king of Denmark has a lot more to gain from going to Christianity than the everyday peasant. So, you know, I think, I think it's a spectrum of, of why people would convert. I think lower down people will convert because they see the almost, you know, you see the King has, so it trick, it has a trickle down effect. Whereas I think higher up, it's a conversion for, for power almost. And you would probably get executed if you didn't convert, if you were some random peasant. There is always that. You know, <laughs> like Harold Bluetooth was like, I carved this shit in stone, guys. It's like literally on the yelling stone. It says I converted the things. If you haven't converted yet, you're dead, right? Yeah. Like if, if you read in the uh, Heims uh, Klingler, you'll, you'll find these stories of uh, from Norway where Olaf Trukvason, uh, I think it's Olaf Trukvason, he goes to a big thing in some part of Norway uh, and then uh, and he wants to Christianize everybody. And and then he uh, then he says uh, th- then he sees that there are too many warriors there, that too m- there are too many for him, and his plan is basically doing like this, like okay, so it's uh, Christianity, <laughs> uh, and then then he um, then what he does is he takes his army and he sends it into that area to just burn and pillage down the whole area which dissolves the army of the local people that are there because they're running home their villages are burning right and then he can take out his axe and go okay so don't you want to be christians all of you (laughs) (laughs) and so 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 there are these stories that you that you get from time to time and also like when you and I, i don't know what research say today exactly about how much this was the rule uh, and how much people converted by themselves. But you also have, when you go through history, uh, you have very, very strict laws enforcing Christianity, at least in mainland Scandinavia. Mm -hmm. Like basically um, uh, you get disinherited uh, for not being Christian until I think it's the mid 19th century. You get disinherited. It's quite serious thing in 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 a in a society where a farm owning a farm and inheriting your farm from your father is is you know the life sustenance of of, of people. That's your livelihood, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's true, and yeah, that uh, you know, it starts out with um, what you were mentioning before these terms like uh, finfara and uh, and so on, like uh, uh, prohibiting that. Prohibiting going to the Sami to uh, to learn. Um, prohibiting rituals, uh, specifically uh, phrased as uh, anyone who gives their property, whatever they own, to anybody else than uh, uh, God or the saints or something like that. Then, then they are uh, uh, what does it say? What does it say? Sacrificing to I'm trying to translate from Old Norse, uh, right? Sacrifice to to heathen beings, heathen spirits. Yeah, that's what it says, right? And that's uh, so that's the prohibition um, that you find in the Norwegian laws, for instance. Um, so, so what they're focused on are two things: um, that that that, that, that um, this um, 
the way of uh, disseminating knowledge and interacting uh, between uh, people who are ritually initiated. That's one thing. That's the, the finfara thing. And then the other thing is the, the actual act of of, uh, of committing sacrifice, doing sacrifice. That's that's the main thing they're worried about. The, the, the spiritual aspects, so to speak, the beliefs, they're not so worried about. And that's probably why they get to exist for so long. I mean, it's really only with Protestantism you know, and there's a very fervent version of Protestantism called Pietism that becomes uh, sort of the favorite kind of Protestantism in, in the Dano-Norwegian Empire that you really start weeding out in um, in the spiritual context for all of this. It starts, of course, with um, our good friend, uh, King Christian IV uh, over Denmark and Norway. Uh, he is the one who starts burning witches, like seriously starts burning witches. That probably also has something to do with his desire for monopolizing the uh, beer brewing industry in, in the kingdom at the time. And um, and then it goes on from there, you know, uh, with the you know, witch craze is still part of it in the, in the 1700s and so on. Um, but but pietism in the late 1700s uh, is is a really important component of of getting rid of old you know ideas um, literally f- uh, framed in in a in a handbook by the bishop of Bergen at the time uh, what was his name something Pontopidan who writes uh, writes a book about getting rid of all the old heathen stuff and and Catholicism <laughs> right that's that's how it goes right uh, so yeah Catholicism in in the sense is, in the medieval period is actually relatively lenient when it comes to uh, the spiritual con- context for all of this. Uh, it's only it's only later on that they get really focused on like what you believe rather than what you do. And this is also, I just wanted to bring a point up uh, here uh, when it comes to these ideas of like, oh, uh, uh, you know, conversion by the sword or conversion by the axe and all that stuff. Um, uh, actually, in, uh, in, in, in late Viking age, early medieval Scandinavia, what the church does is to offer a lot of different people a, a a better opportunity for existing in general. Um, the, the, and this might not sound particularly attractive to modern people, but in a context where you are basically a non-human if you don't have a family, which would be the Viking Age, pre-Christian Viking Age, and also far into the medieval period, right? You, 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 you're not even really a, considered a, a person if you don't have a family and your ability to sustain yourself. If you don't have a farm and a family and all of those things is very, very uh, difficult at least. And so what the church does when it shows up with its institutions like monasteries, right? The Benedictine monks, monks and the Cistercians, um, they offer people an, a, a, a way out, right? They, they offer you to become a monk or a nun. They offer you education and food in that context. They offer you shelter. Uh, there, there are other contexts as well where, you, uh, uh, where the church um, actually helps out and, and, and fills a gap, fills a need in society. Um, you know, hospitals, or infirmaries, or whatever you want to call them, right, that, that are connected to uh, the church institutions. That's something that Christianity offers that uh, is, was not offered before. So actually, in, in many ways, it could be 
uh, could be that uh, people generally uh, converted out of free will and because they thought to themselves, hey, these guys at least have, you know, a little bit of, uh, of help to offer. That's a possibility. And an infrastructure of knowledge. You know? Infrastructure I mean, of knowledge, yeah. I mean, not that, not that uh, pre-Christian, uh, pre-Christians had their own very, very intense knowledge systems and, and associative uh, systems in the whole Skaldic uh, uh, learning and so on. It actually seems to be a culture that was very, very strong focused on specific kinds of knowledge. But with Christianity... That whole thing that okay now you're part of an a, a European infrastructure where there are there is learning you learn Latin and then you can read a whole literature and you can you know uh, travel to other other places and get get learning uh, and they're not gonna they're not gonna like uh, look at you like this because you haven't been baptized or something like that they're gonna take you in and, and I mean I think that must have probably also been been really important for people. I mean, think about it in, in modern terms, you know, the uh, what has been like the awesome shit uh, for Western Europeans over the last 70 years, that's been American capitalism. So so what do you want to do? You want to associate with that? You want to go to New York and, and see <laughs> Times Square? <laughs> Something like that, right? You know, all of these things, like the, 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 that was Catholicism back in the day. You wanted to associate with that. You wanted to associate with that cool ass church over there, and 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 the bomb ass pope who's uh, hanging out in Rome. You know, it makes perfect sense. <laughs> Absolutely. Let's wrap this one up. It's been it's been a fun one. Um, Rune, I think you know we could speak for hours. So, like I say, you you're more than welcome back on any time. Totally. Just just give me a just drop me a text and uh, and we we can go again. Uh, that was super nice, super Ab- nice chatting to you guys. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, is there obviously you've got your calendar coming up shortly? Do you want to give it a shout out? What it is? Let let people know. Can can they buy it direct through you, or is it all? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, I have this uh, anim- calendar project that I've been working on. Uh, I put out <coughs> put it out the first time last year, and it, it's a way of it's an attempt of combining a very broad view at seasonal animism from different periods of Nordic history, and and sort of making it available for contemporary people to sort of. Um, Bring bring this idea of Nordic animism, uh, sort of make it sort of a little bit available for for people in their normal lives. Uh, the, the 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 point of this calendar is to try to to uh, sort of make that sort of the. The, the the bottom line of all that thinking sort of available for with, for with awesome runes and and awesome uh, artwork right you're working with some pretty cool artists um, out there yes I've been working with uh, with a um, an amazing uh, Estonian actually uh, designer uh, graphic designer called Ava uh, uh, Ava Nilsson and uh, and uh, yeah. So uh, and so we've been combining also these these graphic parts of, of, of this tradition. For instance, there's a these I think it's called lock calendars in English, where there's little symbols for old holidays on them, and they're, they're called premstaffs. Uh, so we've taken them and we put them in the calendar. So they there are these traditional premstaff marks that show different holidays and and the runic calendar that I mentioned earlier, which is like the awesomest yeah. thing in the world. <laughs> and, uh, um, 
And uh, I, 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 to this day, I don't really understand that uh, among all the the new pagan heathen hippies that that haven't really been anybody who, who's taken that up like for real uh, before, but. I'm really taking it up. So there's like a calendar, wall calendar you can put on your wall, and a little book with explanations. It's not even a little book. It's a it's a fairly substantial book. Yeah, it, well, the the content is very dense. It's very dense. So it's about 170 pages. And a I, lot know, of I was going to say little book. book. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's bigger than yours, Matthias. Oh no, damn, <laughs> yours is a little bit bigger. <laughs> I mean, yeah, we're, we're going to get some for, for the website as well, so people can find them through us. Or I don't know, are you gonna have you got your own place, your own website where you? Yeah, you can you can find me on YouTube where you look for my name. Uh, you can find me Nordic Animism on uh, Facebook. You can also Google Nordic Animism. There's a homepage, and that homepage you can order the calendar and the book. Uh, and uh, did I forget anything? Nah, I think that was it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Matthias, where can everybody find you? You can always find me on Instagram under my name. If you just uh, search Matthias Norvig, um, you can find the Nordic Mythology channel that I have uh, on Facebook. Just type in Nordic Mythology channel and you'll be able to find it. And also my website, nordicmythologychannel.com. Um, you can find a little bit about me there, some blog stuff that I post once in a while and, and so on. It's fairly unmaintained, but nonetheless, it's full of information. So yeah, go check it out. Absolutely. Okay, yeah, so you can find me, uh, Daniel underscore Farinder one on Instagram or through the through the business so at Horns of Odin on Instagram or just hornsofodin.com um, a couple of box ticket exercises obviously if you enjoy the episode please take a minute just to leave us a review after after finishes wherever you listen to it I'm sure they'll have an option to leave a, a review or a rating um, leaving a positive one really does help us out and lets other people find the podcast and then obviously we have our Patreon where you can get a bunch of cool awesome extra bonus content you know we have live Q&A's on there we have it, like extra story bonus episode like the Inglinger Saga. There's video episodes where you can see our pretty faces and the extremely trendy Rune will be on there. With his axe. <laughs> With his axe, yes. It makes an appearance. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that that's about it. So thank you very much for, for, for speaking with us. It was a fun episode. I think we got through a lot of, covered quite a lot. Yes, thanks for having me. It was super nice, super nice meeting you guys this way. <laughs> awesome. Thank you.